Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 270 for the 7th of June, 2018, or even the 8th of June for some of the people in the, this podcast. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here again with my colleague, Ben Versharen from Australia, which uh, it is indeed the 8th of June there. Ben, how are things? Yeah, really good. Thank you so much for having me back. No, it's uh, it's good. It's it's hard to keep on a schedule for these. I got three of them done in a row, and then life got in the way for a couple of weeks. I want to make sure we got going again. So I appreciate you coming on on short notice. And the good news is there's uh, no, no big crises to cover this week, but there's lots of news. So I'm going to start out by talking a little bit about there was a out of band flash player update today. And I'm hoping most of our users just go, ah, yeah, so what? Because they aren't using Flash anymore. But uh, one of the things I want to remind people that you and I were just discussing uh, in preparation for the podcast is if you're on Windows 10, you can't really get rid of Flash. It's built into Windows. So it's sort of a a good news, bad news situation, right? Because you get the update from Windows Update, so you don't really need to do a lot. But you can't really get rid of it very easily. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the other challenges as well is you're relying on your Windows updates for being installed. So even when it is part of the operating system, you're not having to manually go after those updates, but you're also having to rely on your either your sysadmins or you're relying on your, your Windows updates at home to be updated at a regular interval, which is quite challenging. And a lot of home users especially like to turn off their Windows updates purely because they hate it when they're trying to shut down or turn on their PC because it gets in the way. Yeah, and I I guess the timing's kind of bad as well. So this is an out-of-band because it was being used in a targeted attack. So the good news is it's not in widespread exploitation yet. But usually it's only a couple days before the criminals figure out how to reverse the fixes that Microsoft releases and Adobe releases, and they do start attacking it. So this coming out on a Thursday means we might see attacks over the weekend even. So really make that a priority that if you're using the real Flash player to remove it if possible, and if you're running Windows 10, you can disable it. Try to get those patches, of course, if you need it. But if you don't need it, I was just uh, looking online. There is an ability under settings, advanced settings. There's a toggle that says use Adobe Flash Player. You can toggle that to off in Microsoft Edge and that will turn it off. You can also disable the plugin in Chrome under the uh, add-ons and extensions. If you're using that, you could do what I do, which is just run Firefox and never install the darn thing. Or if you're in an enterprise environment and you need to disable it for Edge, if that's your primary browser at your organization, there is a registry key you can google for it uh, or even bing for it i imagine and uh, you know turn that off across your your estate the other thing to consider is if you are an enterprise and you still require Flash, and Java for that matter actually, um, but if you're requiring these softwares that are still quite vulnerable and continually haunting us, the other thing to consider is looking out at these virtualization uh, technologies to try and containerize or prevent the browser from actually operating with the system. So things like ZenApp and um, VMware Horizon give you that ability to, uh, to essentially limit the browser's operating within your endpoint yeah to essentially give it a secure environment so that's the other thing you need to look at if you still have internal software that's giving you the well forcing you to use a style of software yeah absolutely similar to no difference if you have things that require xp right if you can run xp and even in just a vm virtual box or vmware or something you can help limit your attack surface uh, for the rest of the computer while we're talking about vulnerabilities there was a, a series of uh, active x zero days discovered based on some of the hacks allegedly from the north korean government and i mean 
ActiveX is even worse than Java and Flash from the perspective of you really got to get away from that stuff, folks. I mean, hopefully you're not still using Internet Explorer and won't have any exposure to ActiveX vulnerabilities for that reason. But, you know, just like Flash and Java, I've still got a few bizarro legacy things that I need to access once or twice a year that, you know, works best with Internet Explorer 8 and above. And and if you're in that situation, again, make sure you're getting those Windows updates because uh, ActiveX is kind of a security nightmare. I'm lucky not to be in the situation where I need to use it at all anymore. One of the things that were really interesting about these vulnerabilities in, uh, in ActiveX was it looks like they were targeted at a particular bit of enterprise software developed by Samsung that's used by a lot of South Korean enterprises. So we'll assume there's some kind of correlation there, although we probably shouldn't go down that rabbit hole of talking about geopolitics uh, today, but it's really interesting to see how that's been used. Yeah, I mean, you have to assume any legacy software that you need in your business may be targeted targeted especially if you're in, in a business that, that expects targeted attacks because any good adversary is going to look into how you operate and find those weaknesses and go, right, they're using this thing that requires ActiveX. They're using this accounting software like happened in the NotPetya attack last summer. Whatever it might be, if you know it's your weak point, you have to assume the adversary may as well and you better darn well plan on how you're going to harden and try to isolate those systems if they require you know legacy code to continue to operate. Similarly, the IoT continues to uh, we have a little bit of an update. I think sometime in 2016, we had talked about cloud pets, which uh, were some devices that you know are like teddy bears and giraffes and all this kind of stuff that you could buy at the toy store. And then your child could talk to it and it would record the child and then you could listen to it through the cloud and all this. And the original story, of course, was that they had a MongoDB in the cloud that was totally unsecure and no authentication so that anybody could send messages to your children or, or, or this kind of thing. It's actually been gotten a little worse a firm called Cure53 discovered some Bluetooth vulnerabilities earlier this year in the toys as well. And Mozilla and the EFF have kind of gotten together to try to do something about it. And it's the first time I've seen anything like this, which is they're asking Walmart and Amazon and Target and other retailers to not carry the products. Is this going to be the way we punish insecure IoT? It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? You would think that they would just secure their devices and get on with it. But the fact that there's been no action for what appears to be 16 months is really bizarre. Because with the EFF, Mozilla and Cure53 all penning letters and trying to get these off the shelves and successfully getting off, off the shelves, now they have to go through the process of assembling their security team, addressing their bugs, convincing uh, suppliers to stock them again, and then restocking shelves. This is going to really hit the hip pocket. And it's a real shame because IoT devices are fun. And kids love smarter and more engaging toys. I can't get my kids to play with some toys for longer than a couple minutes, but the moment you put something that's intelligent out there that really engages them, they're occupied for a long time and learn really well. So hopefully this doesn't discourage people from going down the path of IoT toys, but hopefully it sends a message to developers and uh, vendors of these products to say, build it right the first time and don't be complacent. Well, yeah, that was sort of why I asked the question, because I'm thinking that, you know, all these companies seem to be operating with impunity and don't bother to fix anything on the assumption that it's just a bunch of security and privacy nerds overreacting and that nothing's going to happen. And now something's happened. And clearly this could be a career business ending event for the company, depending on how much of a hit they take over this. I thought I I'd saw something on Twitter saying that they, they had shut down the business, I think, entirely over it, which sounds really bad 
other than, you know, when I did some IoT research about a year and a half ago, I discovered that the same companies keep getting formed and reformed and, you know, they they pop up and make an insecure, crappy product for three months, stock the shelves with it, close, reopen a week later under a new business name, make another crappy product, close, reopen under another business name, continually sort of escaping any bad reputation that might accumulate for the brand by just being another unknown brand. And while I've never been, um, as some of our colleagues would call me, uh, I'm not exactly a fashion captain and a brand uh, person when it comes to uh, how I dress or the cars I drive or these types of things. I'm starting to think with IoT that maybe that's one of the ways we hold some accountability to people, like kind of not buying these unknown brands and then the brands that are well-known holding their feet to the fire so that they behave the way that they ought to. And we are seeing that reaction as well, though. Not necessarily with IoT-enabled toys, but, you know, if we look at some of the other attacks that have gone on recently, like the, the VPN filter, for example, it, it was very quick for the vendors to jump on top of that to patch and, you know, release firmware versions available for people to update. So we're seeing a trend of reaction to be a lot quicker and, you know, using things like the IoT Village at DEF CON to actually encourage people to come in and disclose on the spot it has been really effective. So hopefully... If we can go down this path of, yeah, going down the the higher-end toy market, at least we can continue to enjoy these better toys. Yeah, if we can get the, the Hasbros and the Mattels and the big brands, if they're starting to launch these types of things to maybe set a bit more of a gold standard on how you do it, that might give us uh, a little more leverage with, with others to be able to follow that path. Well, well, we'll keep an eye on that. This week was InfoSec Europe in London. Uh, neither you nor I were uh, in attendance this year, but our co- colleagues certainly were. I saw John Shire and Paul Duckling giving talks at our stand. We had a a large contingent of our UK staff there. And one of the real highlights of the conference was an award. So the Naked Security team won an award for the best video security blog for 2000, I guess, well, 2018, because that's the year when it was given to them. But uh, they've been doing fantastic work. And I wanted to congratulate uh, Paul Duckling, Matt Bodie, Mark Stockley, uh, Anna Brading, everybody on the team that makes Naked Security happen and especially those that have put so much effort into creating those those videos, those Facebook Live videos and other things that we've been producing. It's, it's quite the accomplishment and we're really proud of you guys and great work. And while I'm praising some of the work that we've been doing, there's been a lot of stuff. I'm not going to cover it on the podcast. We uh, don't really have time today, but of course the VPN filter vulnerability that's been impacting a lot of these small office, home office uh, router devices from Linksys, D-Link, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the, the number of brands impacted has been expanded. There's quite a bit of information up on Naked Security. Paul Ducklin did a separate podcast entirely dedicated to VPN filters. So rather than cover it here, I would refer you to the previous podcast in our feed. Uh, if you're not done downloading our entire feed, you can get that at podcasts.sophos.com. And Paul does a good job of explaining the risks. There's been some updates this week. So I think keep an eye on Naked Security and we'll have more information for you soon on that. Uh, Moving along, the city of Atlanta, we've talked about that on the podcast before related to the Sam Sam ransomware attack, which was a a targeted attack and had quite a high, I believe it was a $50,000 ransom demand initially. And the city of Atlanta decided not to pay. Now it's alleged now that they've spent about nine and a half million dollars in remediation, consulting, uh, etc., to recover their systems and improve their security. And uh, there's there's been some public calling out that they should kind of have a a, po- a public postmortem that they should explain exactly what happened and publish what they're doing to resolve that. Considering you know they're spending taxpayers' money, it sounds like we may have some slightly different opinions on this. What are your thoughts on that, Ben? 
Yeah, well, firstly, kudos for them for not paying the criminal organisations. Uh, and it's better to fund the local businesses and pay people for the cleanup and investigation than it is to fund a criminal organisation. So good on them. But I personally agree with them for not publicly disclosing the full post-mortem of what happened. Unless there's gross negligence from someone in the business, I don't agree with the naming and shaming, especially public, for CISOs, for IT staff. Nobody deserves to be thrown under the bus, in my opinion. I know you don't... I know you don't agree 100% with that, but yeah, from my perspective, no one's going to repeat the same mistake again. I personally feel that you've gone through these, uh, you've gone through a breach, you've gone through the investigation. Everybody in that team, whether you work in security or whether you're a desktop support admin or level one help desk, you're all going to have security at front of mind for the rest of your career because it's not a situation you want to be in again. So uh, I think this can be actually used to drive a security culture in an organisation to benefit the organisation. So I I personally agree with them not publicly disclosing everything that happened. I'm going to take the other side from a few examples that I have that I think have been very constructive for our industry. You know, in my opinion, we really need to learn from our mistakes. Now, if it was just negligence that was going on there and it was just not patching anything, not monitoring systems, then I guess there's not a lot to learn. We already know that's a bad thing, in which case, do you really need to take more punishment, to your point? But we also see things like Cloudflare. Uh, Now, I'm not a giant fan of Cloudflare. If you're interested in some of the bad things that they shield on the internet, you can watch my talk on RSA TV from this year. But one of the things that I applaud Cloudflare for is going public with all their mistakes and their errors. When they accidentally had some uh, buggy code in their cache that was uh, spewing back some sensitive information a year ago, not only did they publish a public report on how they made the coding error and how it all unfolded, they presented it at conferences so that industry leaders could learn from those mistakes. This week, in fact, if you go on Naked Security, there's a story about how they thought their own DNS service 1.1.1.1 was a DDoS attack and explained precisely how the errors kind of stacked up in the mistakes in their process that allowed them to make such an error. A hugely informative thing and an incredibly positive thing for the community to learn from. And we see similar behaviors in the airline industry. Brian Honan's done a lot of talks on that. For those of you that know Brian from Ireland, a consultant there who's a frequent keynote speaker in our business. Uh, I, you know, I think we have to learn from these. And what happens when we do, when the full truth doesn't come out scares me because we the number of people I hear cite Target as an example of things that have nothing to do with what actually happened at Target because the headlines that came out and then no real final report that was public to clear the air and tell us what really happened. I think it's a real loss for our industry. Yeah, I I can't disagree with that. I, I guess I, I'm just not a fan of vilification of people. So uh, you can probably hit a middle ground here to say, well, let's explain exactly what's happened without throwing any, anyone under the bus. But we could probably look at it in a different way as well and say, well, the city of Atlanta aren't a software vendor. They, they're probably running pretty stock firewalls and maybe they don't have an incident response team, but they're still running endpoint protection. Maybe there's some things they could have done better, but the question is if they haven't got in, say, via a HVAC system or, or similar... Is there a lot to learn from it as well? But uh, yeah, there's a number of different ways of looking at it. Personally, yeah, if they're not throwing anyone under the bus and they maybe say, look, this was the point of inception. These are the things we probably should have looked out for. If we had actively been using a seam and correlating logs and understand 
what our system should have looked like to detect this anomaly, well, then that's going to be beneficial. I do agree there. So I just got an idea, right? I need to create a Tor hidden service where you can dump your analysis report of your incident after you've anonymized whose it is. So we end up with this pile of incident reports and investigations and the forensics that were done, but we don't know which one was the city of Atlanta and which one was Coca-Cola and which one was, uh, you know, uh, uh, Daimler-Benz. And, you know, the, I really want the information to get out there and I'm with you. I, I'm not uh, wanting to string up the CISO or CSO or whomever it may be that uh, ultimately uh, should be held responsible. I'll leave that to the taxpayers of Atlanta uh, to decide for themselves, but uh, boy, Boy, I'm just so frustrated watching organizations fall victim to the same attack tactics because we won't talk about them. And we're so afraid of uh, the litigious nature of the U.S., especially of being sued by our shareholders, sued, sued by our employees, sued by our customers, that we can't tell the truth. And then we just get to watch each domino fall from the same attack over and over and over again. It's it's maddening sometimes, but I think we largely do agree on this. It's just, I'd, I'd rather the, a few people take a hit and we learn something and protect potentially hundreds or thousands of other businesses for the people that are paying attention enough to want to learn from these things than to keep them hidden. But we'll see what happens. Uh, the fact that there's a debate over this is good. And we'll see what they decide and if, if the outcome ultimately is useful or not. Lastly, Karim Baratov, who you may remember his name, John Shire and I think talked about this in a podcast probably close to a year ago now. One of the was accused Yahoo hacker, now convicted Yahoo hacker, working with the FSB on uh, breaking into all those accounts, was sentenced. Uh, he got five years in prison and a $250,000 fine. And I imagine he'll have to serve his time in the US. And then I did read somewhere that uh, after he does his time, he will be deported back to Canada. And boy, I've seen lots of opinions all over on this too. Uh, some of the podcasts I listen to can't believe that uh, he got five years in jail. And other ones I listen to are shocked that, you know, he didn't get 25 years in jail. And I, I thought the sentence seemed pretty reasonable by U.S. standards. Uh, what do you think? Absolute agreement, to be honest with you. Uh, how many times have we seen terrible sentencing from the US for cyber crimes? It seems like they don't know how to process it or understand what's actually happened. And they're treated as bad as drug dealers and murderers. So five years, in my opinion, is not too bad. He'll come out, I think he'll be 35 at the time. When he committed the crimes, he was 23. That was about seven years ago. So he'll be in his mid-30s at the time. There's a path of redemption and hopefully he can put his powers to good use. But he is also going to walk away still with a decent amount of money. I think his fine was quarter of a million and he was paid about one and a half million for the attack so he's done all right out of it from a financial perspective and um, when he gets deported back to Canada I still think he's going to have a pretty comfortable life but at least he's learned his lesson hopefully yeah I, I hope so as well I mean it, it did seem reason I mean I, I I would I would have liked to have seen the fine be a little higher and maybe the prison sentence be a little shorter I mean it, five years is quite a long time for uh, a white collar crime like this although you know you got to figure he affected more than a billion Yahoo users and and I think in in the case itself, it was cited that, uh, you know, Verizon paid something like $250 million less for Yahoo when they acquired it because of this attack. So there were real victims and, and real impact on shareholders, on everyday users of Yahoo's mail service. It, it wasn't a victimless crime by any means, but it, I was encouraged that it, it seemed to be in line. I mean, so many other cases we've seen in the US where they charge you with 93 counts of something and you're up for 75 years at the maximum sentencing. And while no one really gets the maximum sentencing, the sentencing often seems incredibly harsh compared to, I don't know, murder and 
rape, which I think it's a lot easier for us to agree uh, on, on the severity of those things. So well, Karam will do his time. I think he's already been in jail for a couple of years, so he's not got too much more time to serve. We certainly will see what happens, but uh, it's nice to at least see someone punished for what was done and the punishment seemingly be fair. Yeah, and hopefully it gives hopes to those like Marcus, Marcus Hutchins, or also known as Malwaretech Blog, that's currently um, fighting the FBI at the moment after being picked up from DEFCON last year from crimes he did as a teen. So we don't want another Aaron Schwartz on our hands at all. So hopefully this is a sign of things to come to see, you know, fair punishment for your crime. Yeah, also it may encourage if if this if sentencing kind of gets standardized in a, in a reasonable place. I think there's some countries that are hesitant to extradite to the U.S. and maybe more will be willing to extradite more often to the U.S. if the, if it's known that those punishments will be fair and, and equitable. So uh, on that note, I will conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 270. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Uh, all of our podcasts are available on podcasts.sophos.com. They're on uh, uh, all your favorite podcast things, uh, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Google Play Podcasts, all those kind of places. And until next time, stay secure.